Hello everybody, my name is Eric Mercier. I'm co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm gonna walk you through uh, the latest edition of our Premium Wine Club. Uh, today in the studio, we have our good friend, Maddie. Uh, I'll get you to uh, introduce yourself and, and tell us all the things you do. <laughs> Should I talk now? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you can talk. Cool, that's, that's radical. Uh, hi, listeners around the world. Uh, I, my name is Matt Leslie, uh, Maddie, is, uh, I guess, what most people who know me call me. Uh, I am, beyond being friends with Eric, uh, I am also uh, in the wine trade. I work uh, in wine retail at a, a local shop here in Calgary called Metrovino Fine Wines. Uh, beyond that, I am also a teacher for uh, the WSET and a program provider uh, based out of Napa and Vancouver called Fine Vintage Limited. And then, well, I mean, I guess I started my life in restaurants, so it seemed appropriate that I would parlay a, a little bit of formal wine education into some restaurant consultancy, uh, wine programs development. Um, my, my most ongoing contract has been with Concord Group with uh, Model Milk and Pigeon Hole here in Calgary, and a few others that I, I kind of help out with, Rain Dog Bar in Inglewood, and uh, our good friends at Noble Pie uh, that just opened up next to Metrovino. So, yeah, lots of lots of things, but you know the ADD runs deep, so yeah, got to got to have a million things on the go. There's also some wine being made with with one of your initials on the on the label. That is also quite true. Um, I have a little. <laughs> side project with a couple friends, uh, Jenny Book, uh, Britt Anderson, and myself, and our aptly named Wine by ABL, Wine by Anderson, Book, and Leslie. And that started a couple years ago, and we're continuing that train as we speak in slow increments, but yeah. Yeah, fun. You know, yeah, more, more things. All, all, <laughs> all the, the things. things. Um, yeah, yeah, please pour yourself some. Um, so yeah, there's a million reasons why I wanted you on the show today, but one of the things is that our, our listeners are all, uh, well, all, all like six or seven of them are, are like very nerdy, uh, and they love geeking out about, you know, some of the more technical parts of wine, and in particular, a lot of them are going through uh, sort of like WSET training, you know, sort of at a maybe more leisurely pace than either of us have uh, <laughs> gone through. The normal they're, person's they're not, pace. Yeah, they're not torturing themselves with a diploma or anything yet, um, but, uh, you know, or, or trying to, you know, conquer the MW or anything. But at the same time, they, they do like knowing sort of, um, you know, the technical side, the classical side of wine. And so in this one's uh, wine club, we have very classic wines. Uh, you know, normally in the club, we throw sort of one ringer that's like, this is on the outer limits of what could even be perceived as, as wine. Uh, and we love doing that to sort of push the boundaries. But today, I thought comparative tasting would be a really fun way of, uh, you know, maybe introducing people to a more classical approach to wine while still having all these wines be made with, again, no additives, all from organic farms, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so the theme today is we have two Chenin Blancs, uh, both from South Africa, but from two different regions within South Africa, and then same thing with Syrah. Uh, so it'll be a super cool side-by-side, -side, uh, you know, all, all very examable wines. Uh, <laughs> and two of my genuine favorite grapes. Oh, I 100% agree. This was 50% selfish. 
Uh, actually, I think like the club as a general statement is a very selfish endeavor. But at the same time, I'm just absolutely thrilled to be able to uh, you know offer these wines to to people. So I love yeah. it. Yeah, cool. That's super uh, dope. Yeah, so wine number one here, um, this is uh, Intelego. Uh, this is made by our friend Jürgen. Um, he's located in the Swartland. He was one of sort of like the original crew in the in the Swartland. He worked for um, uh, Ibn Sadie, so like the, the classic, the OG, uh, <laughs> arguably. Uh, and then as well as working for uh, Craig Hawkins, um, you know, back in the day when he was still at uh, Lammershoek. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's super cool to see him now, I don't know, almost like 10 years on in his own project. Uh, in addition to that, he's also worked at, uh, Jamais, Domaine Jamais and Cote Roti. Mm-hmm. So obviously, uh, we're, we're going to see some influence there with the Syrah. Um, but his approach to Chenin Blanc, I think is incredibly underrated. Everybody knows him as like the Syrah guy, uh, or at least that's how I often think about him. But I think that his Chenin Blanc is uh, equivalently delicious and equivalently compelling. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, obviously, you're a huge Chenin Blanc fan. I love it. Uh, obviously, uh, with with the Metrovino shop, <laughs> there is a heavy bias towards uh, towards Loire Valley Chenin. Um, but what would you say are a some of the characteristics that you like about Chenin, and then b some of the characteristics that you think uh, make it worth continuing to grow in a climate as different from the Loire as South Africa? That's a really good question. In the first place, I think what I love about Shannon is maybe an extension of what I love about Riesling, what I love about other white grapes in the world like ferment, that I think are capable of expressing density and concentration, but without heaviness necessarily. The sweetness thing, I think, also plays to my particular lifestyle. Um, A lot of what I eat is spicy, and so having wines that have residual sugar in them in a modest amount or in a great amount, depending on, on the thing, but... I find myself consuming more of those styles of wine and, and Shannon is greatly, immensely capable of, of showing that. As far as like aromatics and, and texture profile, I, I love the yin-yang character of Shannon. The, the kind of, we often, or I often think about this duality of uh, above ground and underground where you've got characters of, of things that you can find above the earth usually hanging on trees, or, or vines, and then something that, that tether, tethers that thing to the earth. So something, you know, could be just as simple as an earthiness or forest floor or whatever. And in Shannon, I always find that, that that gets displaced a little bit to something underwater, marine-like, and that mm. yin-yang is a very unique expression to me, in, and that always appeals to me, I think. That, yeah. that it kind of challenges what you expect, and that, I like that challenge. I like that cerebral nature mm-hmm. um as far as shenan goes growing around the world or outside and certainly your your point that yes the metrovanians definitely take shenan very seriously and a lot yeah. of what we sell <laughs> is from the loire we're actually very fortunate that we have a grower who is a native to vouvray but married a south african woman who also grows vines definitely. and so produces shenan on two in two of the classic places yeah the swartland and vouvray and i think that 
duality and seeing the same hand on opposite sides of the world, I think was very illuminative to me and very mm-hmm. enlightening where you can see what the, a little bit more of the inherent difference rather than producer influenced differences. Yeah. Is that Vincent Karem? That is yeah. Vincent and uh, Tanya Karem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah. And in South Africa, certainly a, a warm climate, but Shannon's ability to hold and retain a naturally high acid profile even when it's warm, I think is why it can work in South Africa. And I mean, Jurgen is a master at getting himself out of the way better than most, I think, mm. where Shannon's a tough grape to grow and it's a tough grape to handle and it takes some fortitude to, to be able to, to push the limits without letting it get too heavy. Um, but Jurgen does a great job at keeping the Shannon-ness and not trying to make it into Chardonnay. Yeah, I 100% agree. I I like those uh, certain versions of Shannon, especially from South Africa, where they're going for softer acidity, higher alcohol, a uh, little bit of oak influence, maybe some toasty sort of wheezy things. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, I'm not opposed to that style, but that style also exists in a very delicious grape, uh, Chardonnay. <laughs> so it, it's... <laughs> You're like, cool, you've like turned something that was really unique that Chardonnay can't make wines that taste like Chenin Blanc, but Chenin Blanc can make wines that taste like Chardonnay. So why make a Chenin Blanc that tastes like a Chardonnay uh, if you've already got Chardonnay in the ground? So yeah, I think he does a, a really good job of that. Um, the other interesting thing too here is that uh, this uh, has an extra year on it compared to the Craven, so coming from 2019, and I think it's starting to really show some really nice development here. Mm-hmm. Um, where when it came out, it was like really popping, like green, herbaceous, tropical kind of green fruits, like that really papaya thing. Mm-hmm. And now it's sort of like softened all the edges. It still has that, but it's like you've, you've added like the coconut to your curry now that just like mellows everything out. The slivered everything almonds together. drizzled in honey on yeah. a croissant, like that lazy aspect totally. is starting to come a little bit more and it, it's taking on... It, the corners are getting rounded mm-hmm. nicely. The little cracks and crevices of, of a high acid grape can sometimes be a bit jarring for some people. Mm-hmm. You get that tingle on your tongue and it feels a bit bit jagged, mm-hmm. but with some age, not with sugar, but it almost takes on the sensation of those sweeter things, but it actually makes it seem a bit rounder. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And shockingly, this is sitting at 11.5% alcohol. Crazy. So it's like crazy. How is it this textured? Is is the thing that's that's really I don't know miraculous for me. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really fun little wine. I love the way that they switched up the packaging too. Um, their packaging used to be a little bit more generic, uh, but now they have sort of these these scenes from the Swartland in different uh, in different seasons uh, essentially. And so yeah, I, I really dig what they've done with the packaging on on these. I like these wines. They're on top of being great value they are they often punch well above their weight oh yeah um, as a, a price point relative comment i suppose mm-hmm. they're they're interesting but they're also drinkable and i think that yeah that kind of side by side that duality that that dichotomy is always something that i like where the wine punches above its weight and you can be cerebral about it but you can also just enjoy it for what yeah. it is which is a delicious beverage totally yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything in this wine that in a blind tasting would send you towards South Africa? Ooh. I think the 
more pronounced kind of dusty, granity character would take me away from... I mean, there's certainly places like Savignere where you can get that schistous yeah. character, that, that not quite concrete dust, but that, that quarry-like character. And in, in Savignere, at least for me, that, that more steely feeling, that more steely mm-hmm. minerality, where here it, it stays more in that quarry-like, dusty kind yeah. of character. Um, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but one of the classic hallmarks of Shannon from South Africa is coming across a Chardonnay. And that's the unfortunate mm-hmm. reality is that we're, we're, we're very underexposed outside of South Africa to wines that are made like this, where it actually is very pure Chenin Blanc expression, that autumnal kind of character, that bruised yellow apple, that slightly nutty, oily character, that saline character. It's all there. But then more often than not, and sadly what has become the classic defined South African Chenin carries all of the things that you yeah were mentioned before which is 14 and a half percent alcohol oaky yeah this is like chardonnay but with natural high acidity not acidified but it tastes like a winemaker's hand following the wine down your throat and that's (laughs) that so i I don't know tasting that's a a good question i I hope that we see it's like pinotage pinotage from south africa Mm. it's a terrible reputation and that's because what got exported was largely terrible yeah it's not to say that all pinotage is terrible but you just have to you have to be exposed to the good versions of of it not the totally. overmade and not the under farmed yeah and shannon sadly i think falls into that same category where it's hard because we just don't get enough exposure to it yeah but i agree if and more tasted like that the world would be a better place i yeah. think i yeah i agree as well it's interesting too having having spoken with so many south african winemakers and in particular jürgen and um and talking to craig hawkins and, and talking to craig about like like are there any South African Shenans that you looked up to when you were going to make yours? And he's like, no, no, I, I want mine to taste like it's from the war. <laughs> uh, he's like, I, I don't want them to taste like the famous ones from South Africa because, like, I don't think that's Shenan. I think that's winemaking. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting because there's... I think I would have a very hard time placing it in a blind tasting. That's not to say that there aren't clues in there that would tell you that it's not from the Loire, but it's saying that, you know, it wouldn't be my first instinct based on what is perceived as classic. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those unfortunate things where it's like often the classic wine from a certain region is not actually uh, indicative of the climate or the grapes or like what, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. You can say this about Chile or Argentina or say it about uh, South Chamberton. You can or, say it about yeah. really small places that it's yeah. kind of be, a, a single wine became the generalized version. And that could be a yeah. macro country or macro region, even to a tiny micro village in a particular totally. place. And we extrapolate from one thing to cover yeah. all. And that, that universality is nice yeah. But it's usually false. Yeah, totally. It's convenient. <laughs> as you know. Yeah, for great, sure. Great as a study tool. Yeah. Not great after that exam is over and you realize that it's mostly a lie. I'm yeah, just, just for sure. Yeah. Also, wine education is great. So please keep taking wine education things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's something that we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I, I am curious. But I, I liked your point of... Because I think Loire Shannon often carries more of the pomaceous tree fruit yes the, the mango guava papaya star fruit dragon fruit like that kind of 
early tropical, what I call the smoothie fruits, yeah. uh, when you go away on <laughs> tropical vacations, what's For in sure. your drink in the morning, yeah. those things. I think South Africa shows a bit more of that straight away that yeah. the, that can develop or you see it in the later harvest styles, particularly yeah. in Vouvray, I find. For sure. But things like a, a straight Anjou Blanc that's 100% Shannon, where you can get this filigreed, yeah. lighter style, but still have a bit of that early tropical yeah. can be really, really challenging. Totally. Um, I mean, this at 11.5%. Might scare some people because it's yeah. that's low. That's really low alcohol for sure. Yeah, but it has density of flavor. It has. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good good question. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give us maybe like your structural notes on this? Like for oh, for sure. you know fans out there that are uh, you know tasting alongside and want to know like what would a you know a WSET instructor say as far as where you know acid body et cetera et cetera are on this particular wine. I mean, it's certainly a bone dry wine mm-hmm. and it's easy to get confused when you start tasting those honeyed things or as fruit starts to take on weight, it's easy to, to confuse dryness with off dryness. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely dry. The acid is high for sure. If you want to know academically what high acid is, I mean, I am really struggling right now to not spit all over Eric, who is sitting at the opposite <laughs> side of his uh, counter here. <laughs> And all over this microphone, it, like pay attention to your body. I think your body gives you the answers, but we're, we're so used to letting our brain override everything oh, yeah. else for good and for bad. Um, I mean, you can hear my, my lip smacking going on. That's that, that is just the definition That's what of high as, as it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, salivate. <laughs> even not knowing the alcohol, I, I would be on the lighter end of the mm-hmm. body spectrum. Probably medium minus would be where I would academically put this because yep. it does have a little bit of texture from what I perceive as a tiny bit of skin contact. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course that, that weight that's starting to get put on from an additional year, uh, in bottle. Um, yeah, there's nothing alcoholic about this. There's nothing. No. <laughs> but yet, if you pay really close attention, like that's, I mean, that's got to be close to two minutes now. As I exhale, yeah, yeah, there's some things that have started to disappear, but there's still that really pretty kind of honeysuckle acacia character mm-hmm. that's coming back. There is still that palmaceous, late kind of squished up yellow apple that's coming yeah. back. And, <laughs> you know, the, all of those things, it's so deceptive because wine is convivial. We eat, we drink, we hang out with people. It's not very often that you're sitting at home by yourself dissecting a glass of wine. Yeah. Or even just sitting at home drinking by yourself. And it's important to think about how those flavors persist and how that that confluence, how that Venn diagram is kind of, is it snugly fit together or are these things just floating off into the ether on their own, untethered? And that's, I think this is a great example of where density and concentration of flavor doesn't make it undrinkable it's actually mm-hmm. the opposite it's it's kind of dangerously drinkable yeah exactly <laughs> it's always hard getting that uh that balance right i i do honestly believe that it's very easy to make a very drinkable wine and very easy to make a very complex wine but it's very hard to make a wine that is both complex and drinkable it's uh, it's quite you know, true we saw this with napa cab where you're like cool you've made something that is incredibly concentrated yeah. powerful maybe lots of complexity from a from a fruit and oak and, and you know structural component perspective but they're they're not very fun to drink uh they don't make me feel particularly good oh. you see that with uh you know in barolo or barbaresco or, or in brunello for great examples of 
incredible complexity, absolutely undrinkable. Chateauneuf. Uh, Chateauneuf, great example, for like sure. Just getting so hard to drink. And it's, it's why, I mean, it's why I love what I do. And it's why mm-hmm. I assume you love what you do is because you know that there are these kind of fundamental shifts that are happening, but you know that there's somebody out there who's doing a good job. And I mean, Jurgen, that's a great example of, you know, you have an idea academically in your mind of what South African Shannon is kind of about. And then you go out and find somebody who's doing the opposite for the good reasons, not the bad reasons. Yes. That's, I mean, that's, that's the dream. Totally. I think. Yeah. (laughs) Well, at least it's my dream. Maybe yours too. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, I was really lucky with Jurgen because, uh, you know, we had somebody reach out to us uh, when I still worked at Vine Arts. Uh, I, I maybe just told, told the story on the podcast before, but uh, essentially what happened was this uh, local importer came in, was like, hey, I'm from South Africa. I'm like uh, like a retired opera singer, but I, I love South African wine. Uh, so I wanted something to do and I live here now. So I'm going to start importing South African wine. Here are the three producers I'm bringing in. Uh, how about you try them and let me know if you like them? And I tried them, and again, she wasn't coming from a wine background. She just chose three producers from South Africa that she visited the wineries, and we're like, these are nice. Like, this is great. Uh, and so I was like, okay, hey, cool. Like, I, I love your enthusiasm, but the wines you chose are like, you know, they're not really great for me. Uh, I think there was one or two things where I was like, yeah, like, I'm, I'm excited about this. There was like a semillon that was really cool or something like that. Um, and so I was like, that being said, there are a lot of producers that I would like to see in Alberta. Would you be willing to bring them in if, if I agree to buy them? And so, uh, she was actually, I think her daughter like went to the same like high school as Jurgen and was like Facebook friends with him. Oh, this is before he had like, uh, like a website or any of these things. And so she was able to contact him through that and get an allocation of his wine to bring over here to Alberta. Like this is like early days. Yeah, he's only been around for, for you know, 10 years as far as his own winery goes. And uh, that was at least six, seven years ago. And so um, the first vintage was brokered in just for me for Vine Arts and we used it in the wine club and then we just like drank the heck out of it. Uh, and then the following vintage, you guys bought some of at uh, at Model Milk. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure. And we're like pouring the uh, Kadungu by the glass. Model and pigeon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it was basically just split between the two of us. And then uh, essentially the following year is when we started juice. So I, I no longer had any control over those wines. And so they sort of made their way into the market a little bit. Um, unfortunately she got out of the business. And so when she did get out of the business, she reached out to me and was like, Hey, like, thank you so much for introducing me to Jurgen. I'm not importing his wines anymore. Would you like me to connect you with him? And I was like, 100% yes. And it just so happens that six months later I was going to South Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so got a chance to meet him in person finally after all these years. And, uh, you know, we hit it off and, uh, he beat me at lawn bowling, which was tragic. Uh, and you know little more practice I yeah, suspect exactly <laughs> yeah maybe and a couple fewer beers uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know uh, they like rolled out a television with the springbok game on uh, awesome. so you know just lawn bowling is like definitely a bogan sport in, in, in South Africa I think that's what makes it so great yeah I 100% agree I, I think that's yeah I think that's definitely part of its charm and especially for the wine community like there's there's great I'll call them sports, but I am, I am, I am air quoting. So, yeah. <laughs> um, 
that are just so conducive to drinking. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I, my, one of my first, in fact, my very first bartending job in West End Toronto was at a curling and lawn tennis oh, club. And I was like, yes. these are two very good drinking s- sports to sure. play. Yeah. Um, although running around on a full stomach of beer playing tennis is a bit challenging. Yeah. That's where I think the South Africans and the Aussies, stationary. they've kind of figured this out. They, yeah. Yeah. Totally. It's not a lot of movement. It's just yeah. enough to keep you upright. Yeah. <laughs> um, make sure that your equilibrium is on point. Totally. And, uh, yeah. But yeah. it's so conducive to drinking. You so. got to get into that pickleball. Apparently. I love it. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Changing gears here, going to the Craven Shannon Blanc. So back to back Shannon Blancs here, uh, stylistically quite a bit different. Uh, this is coming from, uh, Stellenbosch. So the first one coming from Swartland, which is north of Cape Town. Stellenbosch is essentially just west of Cape Town. Uh, more coastal. This has come from Caribou Vineyard, which is like literally right on the coast. Uh, you're getting basically just like blasted with the oceanic air the entire time. Your lips feel salty after hanging out in this vineyard, essentially. Um, quite cool, quite exposed. Um, you know, we're talking similar soil types between these two vineyards, but essentially the the difference is that because of the cooler temperatures, you're able to hang on to acid longer, harvest a little bit later. So it's almost counterintuitive versus in uh, in the Swartland where it's like hotter, more arid. Uh, you know, your acid starts dropping a lot quicker. So you have to harvest at 11.5% alcohol if you want that sort of piercing acidity versus Craven because it's cooler there. They can let the fruit hang a little bit longer. So you get, you know, a full percent more alcohol here, about 12.5%. Um, and it, it ends up being, you know, texturally quite different, aromatically quite different, um, despite the fact that it's same grape grown, you know, an hour drive away from one another, uh, and made in essentially the same way. So, yeah. Is there a touch of skin contact on both? Like no. just a short, there's, no, no, there's no skin contact on either. Crazy. Direct yeah. press. Yeah. Direct yeah. press. Interesting. Yeah. Stems on. Uh, one of the things that I have learned about Shannon, which actually came up very recently, um, was reading something written by Mimi Castell in uh, Oregon. And Mm -hmm. she has a small plot, Mm -hmm. had a small plot, because she has now subsequently sold the vineyard, but the Hopewell Vineyard contains a small plot of Shannon. And in her desire to not fall into the trap of making Shannon like Chardonnay, one of the primary things that came up, especially talking to Loire growers, was hang time. Hang time is key but that only works in certain places. And it's, it's yeah. as you say, it's counterintuitive that the more coastal site ends up with longer hang time because you just have more cooling influence. And here, the ocean's cold. Like, I'm a big fan of great white sharks. This is a migratory pathway for <laughs> great white sharks. Like, uh, yeah. it's cold water. They don't want tropical. They are not on Caribbean vacation. This is cold, cold water, and the wind yeah. that comes off of there is cold, cold wind. And that allows you to delay, to slow ripening in an mm-hmm. otherwise really, truly warm climate. How Jurgen does that in the Swartland, in that part of the Swartland at least. Yeah. Because the Swartland is not a, a small area. No, it's massive. It's massive. It's super massive. And to, to be able to do that in more of an inland area is, is actually even more a testament to the mm-hmm. miraculousness of that expression here yeah. where you can use the coast that's that's intelligent farming to me that's that's yeah, how agree. it should be yeah for sure but again getting out of his way and it's funny that you were you know that salty air the first thing that i smelled putting my nose in this glass there is a saline character to both but the saltiness is much more pronounced mm. in this almost has that like white gravy character to it something mm. that's a bit more dense in its 
saltiness, like almost totally. a, like a salt reduction. Um, yeah. But something that carries that in a totally different way than almost the, the iodine watery character in the Intelejo. Mm-hmm. This has more power to it. And that, sure, ripeness, but also yeah. exposure, salinity, salt yeah. just landing on grapes. That That's a true thing. This is like very Vouvray to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like selling and tasting this, I, I just, again, in a blind tasting every time, I'd probably call this Vouvray Sac and, and you know, Absolutely. like warm vintage Vouvray Sac, yeah. like 09 Vouvray Sac, like 15, 15 18, yeah, for sure. 19, 19 20. 20. <laughs> we can just call 2022. I think we, we can call 2023. I think we are going to have to start saying, <laughs> you know, that cold vintage, that cold vintage totally. that we had back in 14 and yeah, otherwise exactly. assuming. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, there's other viticultural issues, but certainly heat yeah. is, is becoming more prevalent. And yeah, definitely. that's, I mean, that's interesting that, you know, and to that point of, Growers who who make Chenin Blanc outside of the Loire, looking to the Loire for inspiration, looking to the Loire mm-hmm. for answers. Yeah, there's a long history there. There's a very long history of Chenin Blanc being in South Africa as well. Several centuries, three three centuries at least, recorded. Mm-hmm. But yet they are kind of underconfident about what they're doing. So they're looking somewhere else. And I have a feeling that in a couple of years you're going to see Loire producers looking to South Africa, asking, totally. "How do you manage heat in?" In South Africa, when it comes to Shannon, because we're going to be screwed. Yeah. Yeah. No, Terrible I, things to think about. But I 100% agree. I, I think that the same thing is probably happening in Burgundy with California. Uh, Certainly. Being like, you know, looking at guys like, you know, uh, like uh, Arno Roberts, like the guys from, from Arno Roberts and, and being like, hey, so, you know, I tasted your Pinot. It was 12.5% alcohol and California was hotter every single day than it was in Burgundy. Yet mine came out at 14.5% alcohol and, like, I don't really like drinking it anymore. Uh, How do you guys do that? (laughs) So I think, uh, yeah, I I never thought about it with... uh, The inverse envy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, for sure. Like, you know, champagne producers are going to be doing the exact same thing in the near future or they're just going to be all moving to uh, the UK. 100%. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. exactly. We'll be growing Syrah in Burgundy, growing Burgundy in Champagne, and growing yeah. Champagne in the south of uh, the UK, like yeah. we already are. In Finland. So, <laughs> yeah. Why yeah, not? Denmark. Right. I was just reading Denmark has some grapes that are oh, planted. Yeah. For sure. The Netherlands, yeah. near Utrecht, I think, like somewhere in there. There's yeah. some grapes planted. Like crazy, crazy people. Yeah. Like, gotta love it, though. Yeah. Admire it's... admire the insanity. For sure. I always use the st- statistic that, like, uh, like the Ukraine still grows more grapes than Canada does. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, if they're growing that many grapes in the in the Ukraine, then like, yeah, Syria you know, grows more grapes grow. than us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, funny things like yeah, that. Yeah, for sure. That includes table grapes, though, correct? That is the catch for that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That is the catch. I for assume this. that Turkey. Yeah, of Turkey is one of the Syria. largest grape growers on yeah. the planet, but yeah, very little for obvious reasons goes into wine production. Yeah. Um, yes, that's quite true. Poland yeah. uh, grows about an equal amount. Mm-hmm. That's why I say Canada is Switzerland. Yeah. We, we are actually kind of on par. <laughs> I did a class and I, I actually did a comparative slide of here's land cost in Switzerland, here's land cost in Canada, here's totally. here's, co- here's minimum wage, here's cost of equipment. This is what it looks like, mm-hmm. kind of apples to apples. And it's it's not insignificant. Like it's really actually quite close in For terms sure. of our total production, land coverage, and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. We are the Switzerland of North America. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Except bigger. <laughs> yeah, so we're a little bigger. Just stretched out. Just re- exactly. Yeah. It's like you put the, the image in the photocopier, but you just had your hand on it and were sliding it across. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's Canada. Yeah, for sure. 100%. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so maybe jumping to something that's a little bit different here, because you sort of brought up, you know, one of your slides, and, and, and uh, you know, I think of you a lot of the time as a teacher now, uh, which is, again, knowing you uh, for like 10 years now, I maybe wouldn't have guessed that uh, <laughs> 10 years ago, uh, during during the early days, the, the wine bar Kensington days, and the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the early life there. Um, so when it comes to teaching, um, I think that a lot of the time you have to sort of carry a duality, uh, because, uh, obviously you are your own person who likes your own flavors and has your own opinions about wine. A lot of that tailored through the places that you've worked, uh, again, obviously most recently Metro Vino, but also through, through all your other sort of experiences. But at the same time, you're teaching to a curriculum that was written across an ocean from you and you have to sort of balance these things. Um, do you enjoy that aspect of the job of getting to sort of, uh, you know, this performative aspect where, uh, you sort of have to, you know, you're given a clear set of parameters you, you, and then you, and then you have to do that as best as you can. Or, uh, do you wish that there was a little more flexibility in, in sort of this, this, uh, like maybe old guard, mm. you know, led, uh, education group? Yeah. I mean... Nothing is perfect. I, mm -hmm. Both of us sitting here at this table are products of formal, the same formal wine academia, and yet both of us share a taste for wines that are not covered in the curricula throughout those four levels. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at... The WSET, the way that you look at culinary school, it is a springboard. It is mm -hmm. a, I, I think from an instructor's point of view, I think it's, it's really beneficial to me because it forces me to remove my politics, which is very easy to just let it pervade your entire existence and say, well, I only like these wines and I'm not going to try anything else. Yeah. It forces me to try styles of wine that I wouldn't go out and buy on my own. And mm -hmm. that is really crucially important. And especially as you get to level three and teaching diploma as well, that it's not just about the 1% of wines that we all love to talk about and love to think about. It's, it's a bigger conversation about the, the brands that get people into wine in the first place. Totally. That, that for me was like Jaylor seven Oaks cab in 1999. Like yeah. that, that was, that was the hot shit yeah. when I Matus Rose and black yeah. tower. And yeah. thank God I didn't go through that. I don't know how that, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know what kind of person I would be if I, but those wines, I mean, for some, they get, they, and I'm not shitting on any brand here. I am not saying anything negative about any of those things. Um, it gets you into the, the, into the market. It gets you into the beverage. Then hopefully you move on and you say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to try more things. And the WSET and being a teacher for the WSET forces me to go back to those things, perceived classics. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I, I don't think is is I don't think it's normative. I don't think it's good or bad. I choose to see the positive out of it, that for me, I get exposure to styles of wine outside of what I would naturally gravitate to and would have to spend my own hard-earned money on. I like that I get the exposure through that. And it, it, it does force me to put my politics aside to, to not try and 
persuade someone to dislike the things that I also dislike. Yeah. If you like those things, that's fine. I, it, I am unaffected by that. I just, mm-hmm. my only rule, I think the rules of wine are bullshit and I say this in class all the time. It, nobody should tell you what to drink. Yeah. Use your own mind, use your own palate to decide if you enjoy something. And I love teaching because it forces me to put myself aside and say, I might not take this home, but I can at least appreciate what it is. And I can understand why students or the average wine drinker or any wine drinker, I can see through their eyes almost empathically that I, I understand you. I understand why you like this. And that's, that's totally cool. And it's, it's really good for me. Totally. I do love that when you get to higher levels, level three, especially level four, where you can start to really analyze, really critically analyze. Level one mm-hmm. and level two are a great superficial look at how things work from vineyard perspective all the way to a final glass and, and even a little touch of how wine moves around the world. But you get to level three and four, and not only are you covering those things in great detail, but you're also able to dissect a wine to a much greater degree to not necessarily to find the imperfections, but to understand the nature of what you and I have to do every day, and that is assess quality. For sure. Yes, we all have our preferences, but you, as well as I, are, I think, better than most at at saying, you know, this might not be the wine that I would take home at the end of the day, but I, I understand its inherent quality. It's mm-hmm. farmed well, it's made well, it was tended to carefully, and the product on the other side of that is something worth its weight. Yeah. And that, I think, that's what I love about the higher level. So I love this this kind of, it's not a, it's not a mask, it's not being a chameleon, but it does force me to put myself aside, and mm-hmm. that is a good practice in the wine world. I otherwise would just go in and drink the same yeah. things over and over, and, and that's sure. exactly what I'm rallying against. So I'm glad that this thing forces me out of that inherently. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. Um, in the in the same boat, I, I'm obviously a huge fan of, of academia, for better or for worse, unfortunately. Uh, I just like, I love learning in sort of these structured environments and it works for my particular learning type. Obviously, it's it's not conducive to everybody. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of incredibly intelligent, incredibly talented wine tasters uh, in the class that I was in who failed. Uh, and it's because, you know, not always because they didn't know the information, but were unable to deliver it in a way that was helpful to anybody else. Uh, it was in their brain, but they weren't able to, to share it, which is, you know, f- that's essentially where you're getting your grade from, is being able to tell them that you know what you know, uh, and being able to give them the answers that they want. Um, there is so, an exam technique. It's for still, sure. There is exam technique in anything that you do in academia, mm-hmm. and, and not always the, the person with the most knowledge is able to put that on paper. I know from the MW, I know people, some of the best tasters that I've ever met that probably exist on this planet that couldn't pass the tasting exam for the MW. And then others oh, yeah. that I, I met that I thought were actually quite modest tasters. They were, they were good. They practiced hard, but they understood the technique to answering the questions at totally. hand. And that is part of the, the good side and the bad side of yeah. academia. It's it is challenging that way. Yeah. I, Just because you don't have credentials doesn't mean you're, you're a bad person. Totally. <laughs> like, I agree. It's, yeah. It's just a credential. And I'm, yeah. I a hundred percent agree with you. I need the structure. I need, yeah. I need, 
I need to be the whipping boy. I need to, yeah. I need to have somebody standing there saying, you need to be doing this. It just totally. works for my, my brain, my personality. Yeah. I, it's really funny. Uh, just on the topic of blind tasting, I was doing a tasting, uh, this weekend and, uh, I've done a bunch of tastings for this group before. So this time I decided to do it blind for them and be like, I'm not telling you what you're getting this time. This time we're doing it blind. There's going to be a couple of themes. You can, you can figure it out. And they were asking me like, how, like, uh, how did you do in blind tasting? Like, what was your like experience with blind tasting? And I was like, I found blind tasting incredibly easy because you're literally given the answer. It's, it's in the glass. Uh, you know, the amount of marks that you actually get for guessing the wine correctly is, is negligible. The only things that you have to do is, is tell them, you know, how much acidity is it black fruit or red fruit? Like you're, you're doing a fairly simple task, uh, in the sense that once you've been trained to do it, you should be able to do it on command and you're literally given the thing. Uh, it's like given a painting and you're like, tell me what colors are in this painting. You're like, cool. There's like red, blue. Like what is the painting of? Well, it's a, it's a clown. Uh, and you're like, cool. The painting is like literally in front of you. It's not hard. It's the same sort of thing is once you understand the language that the, that the thing is speaking, yeah. all you have to do is just like really write down what's in the glass and you, you've been given the glass. Like you don't even have to find the glass. It's in front of you. So it's was, marked. It's yeah. numbered. Yeah. So I was like, I was never stressed out going into a blind tasting because I'm like, it's there. Like all I, all I have to do is not worry about what it is. Just describe it accurately. Look at my notes at the end and be like, cool like based on what's written down here it can only be a handful of things so yeah. it's you know throw one of them out there hopefully it sticks and if not then like yeah. that's the you know blind tasting is not a trick it's not a game no. there's no I, I mean yeah you can be somebody can do something sneaky in a blind tasting sure but in those types of exams they are really looking for as you say the analytics, they're not looking for your, it, it doesn't come down, 100% of your mark doesn't come down to what it is. Yeah. And it's so hard for people to understand that because they want that self-satisfaction. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, at <laughs> one point, was very much like that, but thankfully shed it long before I got to my final unit three diploma exam, mm -hmm. the, the big exam. Um, it's, and how I talk about this as a, an instructor is blind tasting is not a parlor trick. It's putting together a puzzle without the picture on the front of the box. That's, that's what that is. So what do you do? Start with the edge pieces. Start by creating a framework within which you are going to operate. And then it's, it really comes down to just being a good interviewer, being a good journalist, being a totally. good detective. Yeah. Being a good interrogator, a good interrogator, an actually good interrogator doesn't tell the person that they're the subject <laughs> of their interrogation the yeah. answers. They ask a question. They listen intensely carefully to every yeah. single word that's being said, every body movement, everything. That's what a good interrogator does. That's what you're doing when you're academically assessing a glass of wine. You are asking it questions and then you are seeking an answer, but you're open whether that answer is what you thought it might be or what it might not be and that's the hard part i think is is having an openness almost like the scientific method i, I don't want to prove that my hypothesis is correct i almost want to disprove it mm -hmm. so i want to go through the motions and and try to disprove myself and then if if the the evidence is irrefutable then 
put it down on paper. Yeah. And if you're wrong, chances are you are wrong for the right reasons. Yep. And that is what I love. I love being wrong for the right reasons. Yeah. If I came down, if I was in a blind tasting and I'm like, well, this is either Cabernet or Merlot and I can't decide which one. And I come down on one side of the fence and it turns out to be the other. Okay. I made a, just a slight deviation at the very end, but the yeah. rest of what I said is still valid. It doesn't invalidate everything that I've just done. For so sure. hard for people to understand that, but yeah. And remember what the objective is. The objective is for you to be able to assess quality. It's not to name, well, that's South African Shannon, or that is Loire, that's from the Savignard, that's this, that, yeah, fine, that is a part of it, but it's more important to assess quality, and that's literally what you and I do every day of our lives. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. We put that thing into practice. So if you think, oh, well, blind tasting or or doing this academic tasting isn't worth it, it depends on what you're doing. For some, yeah, it maybe isn't worth it, but for those of us in the wine trade, I think it's crucial. It's why I'm a firm advocate of blind tasting. Totally. That it putting aside any preconceived idea and just experiencing for the experience and using your brain to analyze what you are smelling and tasting. Yeah. Massively crucial. Yeah. No, I think I, I have to agree. believe that. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I will go to my grave believing that to be the truth because I have to in order to reconcile all of the things in my life. That yeah. I, I think blind tasting is a valid exercise for that for those reasons mm-hmm. I think no I, I agree <laughs> I'm with you uh, before we get too far yeah, off yeah, yeah. topic go on any, it's any my favorite closing, thing <laughs> any closing remarks on the Craven oh man I think yeah that we we kind of got sidetracked on that uh, I'm glad you brought that up I I I really love the density and mm-hmm. intensity of this it's still to me and i stand by my first comment what what are the the hallmarks of or what is what what could i say is it a, a quintessential south african note in shannon in this particular style yeah not in the stellenbosch style let's say the premium chardonnay-esque yeah. style yeah <laughs> here i think although this comes from stellenbosch you're seeing hands-off winemaking, you are seeing fruit development, you're seeing flavor development, you're seeing textural development from a young wine that shows it was grown in an intelligent place. Mm-hmm. I love the the granite dust that that quarry character carries totally. on to both, that salinity carries through both. In as I mentioned in the Craven, I think to me at least it was a bit bit heavier salinity something that's got a bit almost like a an iodine or a salt spray reduction if that makes sense or, totally yeah uh white gravy was the kind of umami style of that salty expression to me um and then that slightly riper papaya guava mm-hmm. mango fruit character yeah, the overripe definitely. pomaceous but really truly getting into the the kind of very gentle early tropical stuff that for sure it's really wonderful again uh, compared to the intelligio it's it's a little silkier it's a little rounder mm-hmm. but pay close attention because that acidity is fucking ripping too yeah definitely. it's just it's a little more buried yeah there's so much sort of like oily waxiness over the yeah. top of it that it's sort of just like you know i always say beveled like it's like somebody sanded off the edges of it exactly but it's still there yeah. <laughs> like yeah for what, sure what took the the first shannon a year extra in bottle to kind of Bevel, mm. bevel the edges. I yeah. think this, what mixed done is by design yeah. in a younger wine by the nature of the place. And For that's, sure. that's, 
yeah, I think both are really well done. And again, like we, I mean, we're just such snobs about Shannon at Metro. We, we do, yeah. we love the grape and I don't like seeing versions of it that give Shannon a bad rap because mm-hmm. I love the grape and I almost feel like I have a personal vested interest in waving the flag for Shannon. Yeah. And then you come across some that are just either picked really way too early yeah. or they're, they're picked way too late and then turned into something that kind of obfuscates what they came from. Yeah. And I, I don't like either of those on opposite ends of the spectrum totally. and, and two South African Shannons that Shannon's tough and, and South yeah. Africa's tough, but two Shannons that I think are very much worth their money and worth, worth time, worth endeavoring your own wallet for sure because they're enjoyable mm-hmm. cerebrally, but also just from a pleasure. Yeah. Humanistic they're, just, standpoint. they're also just delicious. They're just yeah. delicious, but <laughs> couldn't be great. more different from one another. Yeah, and, for and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, hey, I, I honestly am incredibly biased, and I love both these Go wines, on. and I, I think they're, uh, <laughs> and I, I honestly think that they're incredibly underrated as well, too. Um, people often drink the red wines from these producers. Um, the Kadungu is, like, one of our top-selling wines uh, for good reason, mostly from a retail perspective, but every once in a while, it, it makes its way onto, like, a glass bar or something like that, uh, and it's, like, that's what people know of them for is is that and then the Syrah like this is uh, the next wine we're going to taste is is definitely their flagship I would say um and then with Craven uh you know their Sinso has kind of gotten uh this like cult status amongst uh like our group of friends at the very least and it's we order more of it than we order any other wine which is so That's weird because so it's like $40 retail Sinso that I think is just like outrageously good uh, and then their cab over the last couple of years, people have been going bonkers for the cab and it's very exciting. I have uh, long said that. I yeah. think, yeah. Although I don't work with it at Model and Pigeon, it's only because if I put a Cabernet on at that price, I would literally cannibalize everything else. Yeah, um, sure. Which is not anybody's fault except my own for how yeah. I built those lists. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. This is not a customer slight. This is not a producer slight. Yeah. That wine fucking rocks and yeah. i don't say that very often about cabernet because it's just totally. usually Especially not a great south african cabernet like generally one of, for me personally again not a slight on anybody but yeah generally a grape and a place that just don't excite me but yeah, yeah. it's such a good wine and yeah. value for money it's it is such a good wine mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah i i think that essentially like these two whites fly really under the radar despite the fact that i i think that these are you know, to their strongest feet forward for sure. And so, yeah, we really wanted to include them in the club so that people could be like, oh, yeah. wow. Like, why have I not been drinking these? Uh, and not only that, but like, again, Chenin Blanc, ageability. We've had bottles of, of Craven that have been, you know, four or five years old now uh, that are absolutely singing. So it's like, you know, you don't have to be shy about grabbing a couple of these and, and putting them in the cellar, watching them develop over a couple of years. I love uh, yeah. putting wines like that. Very seem, seemingly very modest. So let's say the like twenty five to fifty dollar price point in our Alberta market retail. Um, putting wines like that into your cellar and seeing what happens over five years, ten yeah. years, twelve years, fifteen years, depending on the wine. But I love it when those things come out the other side and they are they have morphed. They haven't, what they have gained or lost is, doesn't make you feel bad for that spend of money. Yeah. And in fact, makes you feel really good that you bought 
six bottles of a modest wine that you aged for a decade and came out on the other side with something amazing than the one bottle of something that you spent an equivalent amount of money on that you sit on like Gollum and and then wait until the (laughs) perceived perfect moment only to have this expectation be a letdown. And that, that kind of sucks. Yeah. And I mean, it's happened to me. It will happen again, I'm sure to me. Um, but I love it when you get wines like this that are, you know, 30 bucks retail, 35, 40 bucks retail, and you can buy them in sixes and put them down and not think twice about how long they're going to go. Yeah. That's totally, I agree. That's amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, cool. I put this wine up to my nose and was immediately like, I saw your face. (laughs) Your face was, you made a very fun face. And I was like, Oh, I can't wait to have this inside of my nose hole. This (laughs) wine is just so good. Uh, it's like, you know, people often ask me, like, what's your, what's your favorite grape? Like, you know, what's your favorite red grape? What's your favorite white grape? And, and often I'm, like, up in the air because, like, obviously a lot of the Pinots that I've ever had have been, you know, if you can drink in that upper end of the spectrum of Pinot, which is uh, obviously, like, financially not really that viable <laughs> usually. Um, but they can be completely out-of-body experiences and, and just transportive. But I honestly think that... If, if I had to, like Syrah might be the way to go for me. I just think that it's, it can do more than Pinot can do. It's like what you're talking about with like why Shannon is so cool is it can make bone dry, low alcohol wines. It can make full body dessert wines. It Sparkling can, wines. It can bubble. Yeah. Better than Riesling. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Nobody wants Riesling sparkling wine. There's like three good versions ever. I can't wait to be surprised by somebody's version. Yeah. The, the Lauer... Extended yep. age, it's really good wine, but also comes with a hefty price tag because sure. of the nature of the thing. And yeah. I, I do very much enjoy it, but Shannon Bubbles to me is why, because almost yeah. it, it becomes like a comical pantomime of Shannon, but in sparkling form, which yeah. just makes it even more vibrant on the nose as those little carbon dioxide bubbles permeate your nostrils. And it's yeah. like, that's like not many grapes. Arguably no other grape can do it the way that Shannon can do it. And I think that's kind of worth, I think that's worth pause and celebration. Yeah. And to your point about Syrah, I often say, I hate playing favorites. I hate playing favorites. Yeah. What's your favorite grape? Depends is always the answer that I give. Depends. What am I eating? How am I feeling? What's the season? What? Yeah. Did I have a good day, a bad day? Am I thirsty or am I, I need something to flex my muscles and my brain. Syrah is a grape that is definitely part of a short list of grapes for me that I love very much. And yet my cellar is just entirely devoid of Syrahs. I have like three because I figured this out not that long ago that I buy them and then I just drink them straight away. Ah, So I say that I love Syrah and I do. I genuinely do. My cellar is desperately devoid of Syrah because I bring it home (laughs) and I put it into the fridge and I put it to the back of the fridge where it's really hard to get to. And then two weeks later I'm there fishing it out because I just want to drink it. Yeah. And I, so, I mean, that the proof is in the cellar, I think, yeah. my, or lack thereof, I guess. Yeah, for sure. No, I'm, I'm often in the same boat. Um, yeah, so this is coming from the Partiburg. Um, so the Partiburg is sort of like, not the southernmost point, but definitely one of the southernmost points in Swartland. Uh, it's essentially this like kind of like bulbous mountain thing that sticks out of the ground. Um, 
it's often described as like kind of looking like a hand from above because there's essentially like five fingers of like mountains and then between those there are the kloofs uh, or like the ravines I guess is maybe the closest yeah Yeah. the closest translation Um, and essentially you know that's where all the water collects so you're able to grow grapes there plus you get different angles uh, so you're not facing you know due north uh, or you know whichever direction you can actually set yourself up for for success um and so yeah this is uh you know essentially decomposed granite so same soil types as the last three wines um and uh and i don't know just like syrah perfection for me uh as far as south african syrah goes like i he just does it so well uh this one's a, a sneaky one too he's often you know 12 12 and a half percent alcohol on his syrah this one's up to 13 but I suspect that it's maybe a, a oh, pinch. Why do you let that? it go so far? Uh, yeah, exactly. Why do you let this get so lazy right? farming? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, just like, oh, like just everything I like about Syrah. It's so aromatic. And I think, cause I've never actually thought about this until you asked me what it is that I like about Shannon. And I think a lot of the same threads exist in Syrah, especially in this form. Mm-hmm. Syrah About or Shir- the Shiraz yeah. expression where it's it's more hedonistic, sun-drenched fruit, like your, your, where your fruit goes on vacation. Yeah. Um, that's fine, but it becomes maybe a little more monodimensional where this, that above ground, below ground, or that, that yin-yang duality of, of fruit and savoriness in a multitude of forms that can yeah. be, you know, peppercorn rotundo notes that can be without being bready it can be animalia Mm -hmm. just by the grape the nature of the grape itself and i think that that duality presents something so i I guess the 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 thread between syrah and shannon to me i guess is that it's fruit and other yeah and in a a more balanced expression Mm -hmm. is what i like or and when i'm talking about those grapes expressions thereof that emphasize that more even balance, that more even weighted savory and fruity or other fruit and other whatever. Yeah. And this certainly is no exception. Yeah. I mean, very wild, almost like rooibos tea and wild blueberries. Totally. And that full on, like the South African version of Garig, where it's like, uh, you know, like wild bay leaves, like, you know, uh, um, what are the flowers that are there that whose names are escaping me? Oh, uh, like violets and, uh, uh, you know, anyways, lots of floral characteristics here. Um, yeah, but sweet, sweet garig, not the, like, yeah, it's like, uh, like oregano flowers, uh, is like one of the things, but yeah. What is the name of that flower? That's, uh, I like, I legitimately have, that's, that's, I can, I can find this. We've gone to the spice drawer to look up ingredients. Lavender. Lavender. There we yeah, go. Lavender. <laughs> Just had yeah, to go yeah. to the spice cabinet. <laughs> Just needed, yes. Um, the, but yeah, like lots of the sort of like dried lavender characteristics. Which I think gives like, a bit of a sweetness that it's easy <laughs> to then say, well, the fruit is more ripe, but it's not. It's this... It's this sweet other stuff. Yeah, that, it's like sappy. Yeah, like it's exactly. Like resinous, resinous, sappy, yeah. exactly. 
uh, yeah, for me, it's like, it always reminds me of like incense. Mm -hmm. Like when you like light an incense, like it's, it smells sweet, but you're not tasting anything sweet. Yeah. And in fact, if you put your nose really close, it's kind of bitter. Yeah. Which makes, and again, lavender on its own is actually kind of oily and bitter, especially if you get, um, like smelling lavender in the middle of the day with hot sunshine beating down on it. And it almost feels, it smells oily Mm -hmm. and that's, yeah, but it has a sweetness to it that just permeates everything. Yeah. Frick. But very wild. It's very wild. wild, Yeah. Squishy raspberries. Like, you know, like a little kid, little toddler eating raspberries on a hot day and just red juice, like running over every inch of their forearms. And it's like, that's kind of what this smells like. But again, it smells like authentic fruit, ripe fruit, fine. Maybe even squished fruit, but that fruit is natural. Yeah. Tastes and smells like something that comes from the real world, not from a convenience store. And I think that's, where sweetness goes down the bad side. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, one of the questions that I, I wrote down as we were sort of talking here was uh, sort of digressing a little bit to, um, you know, how we talk about wine and, and how uh, you teach about wine. And like, I, I know the answer to this, but I would like to hear your answer and I would like to hear you explain it in a way that's more eloquent than, than me trying to explain it. Uh, is blind tasting becoming harder with the homogenization of wine? You know, if you see things like, you know, left bank Bordeaux versus Napa Cab, that's becoming a lot different conversation than it was in 1982. Um, How do you think the wine education world is going to deal with that? And is this just a momentary sort of bottom of the pendulum swing and it's going to change? Or do you think that the new normal is homogenization? That was a lot of questions. I'm sorry. I kept having more things to say as I, as I was speaking. <laughs> That's a really tough set of questions. I, As an anecdote to this, when I was an MW student, uh, I was talking with uh, Mary Ewing Mulligan and Pat Farrell, both American MWs, really intelligent, beyond intelligent wine people, but also just genuinely intelligent and amazingly nice people. And both of them achieved their accreditation in before the millennium. Mm-hmm. Um, and both of them independent of each other in two conversations separately said it's way harder to pass the MW tasting now than it was when they were doing it. Mm. It was way more clear what the classics were. It was way, the lines were way less blurry. However, I think from a consumer standpoint, that's a good thing. You Mm. used to, I talked to Richard about this often that you used to have to spend money on the Grand Cru's or the First Gross or, you know, a good Premier Cru from a good producer. And you had to spend extra relative to everything else. But also everything else wasn't that great (laughs) because the (laughs) average, the bottom of the wine world, that that first rung wasn't very good. It took Mm -hmm. some a couple of things to happen in the world, and that has happened in both of our lifetimes. Yeah. The democratization of, of wine technology means that you can make a much better product. We are way more expert at it. But the result now is from an academia standpoint, it blurs the lines incredibly. Mm-hmm. It is much harder now to tell the difference. And there are times where I am saying, this is either 
uh, version of this thing from Europe or a style of somebody somewhere else trying to make it like that or yeah. vice versa. So totally. basically, not only am I talking about, I'm talking about half the planet. So my two guesses, <laughs> my, my fence post is half of the planet. Yeah. This either comes from France or Australia. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big fence post. And yeah. that has happened. And I, I have noticed it happening, not just with me, but hearing students in blind tastings that I have with, with friends, with coworkers, colleagues, yeah. other wine professionals. I hear it all the time in varying forms, but kind of boil down to this idea that it's, is there somebody trying to make European styled wine? Is there somebody in Europe trying to make a warmer climate, new world style yeah. of wine? Yes. The answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Which makes it very hard. Homogenization. I mean, that's been a thing for a long time, but I also think with that homogenization, you have a, a better bottom level, but also you've got people who are actively rallying against that. Mm. And if you are disinterested in the homogenous, you have more options now than ever. You have vine arts. You've got, I, I mean, here in Calgary, at least, all over, anywhere that you can buy wine, you will have a specialty retailer who is actively yeah. shelving products that are, are heterogeneous yeah. on purpose. And you can celebrate that or you can disdain that truth, but that's, that's the nature of the world. So I, I don't know. And to your final point, like has the pendulum, are we at the bottom of the pendulum or is the pendulum swung out? I think the answer is yes and no. Cause you've got people like, I mean, aforementioned Arno Roberts, uh, Sassy Mormon, Raja Par, Saratas, you've got lots of producers in California that are making wines 2% alcohol less using Burgundian grapes than yeah. their counterparts in Burgundy. Mm -hmm. You've got, I, I think that the pendulum is a vortex <laughs> and it's, it's kind of moving in, in a tesseract number of dimensions <laughs> yeah. and, and therefore, yes, it is, is swinging, but I don't think it's ever gonna reach its end because yeah. people we have now, sorry for the diatribe there, but we have more options for people who are trying to do that or trying not to do that. Yeah. And I think that that then falls to us as consumers. That falls to us as wine educators to say, hey, yeah, this is an option. But to my earlier point about going to do wine academia is the same as going to culinary school. You don't walk out with your, your papers after getting your red seal as being a chef and saying, well, I've learned everything there is to know about food. Job done. Yeah. Yeah. You don't walk out <laughs> of your level four or the MW and say, well, now I know everything or the MS or any other high level credentials. Yeah. No. All it is, is a foundation with which you can build your continued education for the rest of your life. Wine is, yes pun intended, a fluid thing and it changes every single day. So mm -hmm. you, part of the, you can either enjoy that, I enjoy that, because I love that things are, are perpetually moving, and then bring in the cerebral aspect of, of your actual tasting enjoyment of the, totally. the analytical, the, the technical production side. I think yeah. that's, that's why wine appeals to me. And to answer your question, I think we're so lucky, mm -hmm. but yeah, this weird multi-dimensional spinning top cone, whatever <laughs> pendulum <laughs> makes it tricky, but yeah, you're helping satisfy that with things like this. That totally. That I, yeah, that, that's the thing that I find really interesting is that, uh, Again, this is something that I was talking about the other day, but the idea that um, 
like every single town in Italy had a wine that tasted different than every other town in Italy. And this, a lot of it had to do with um, like lack of ability for grape material to make its way from town to town, pre-cars, pre-railroads, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what ended up happening was certain grape varieties won out and have replaced a lot of those grape varieties. And it was not always because those grape varieties were making better wine. Maybe they were higher yielding. Maybe they were more resistant to certain diseases. Um, or maybe they were in fashion at the time. Maybe they were making a specific style of wine. You know, we see it with Cabernet Sauvignon's uh, crazy rise to being the number one planted red grape on planet Earth, where, you know, a hundred years ago, it was planted in like one tiny place <laughs> in, the, in the world. And even then, it wasn't made into monovarietal wines. Oh. I think like, the, I, I can, you know, I'm not going to say this 100%, but I would be very confident saying that a hundred years ago, there had yet to be made a monovarietal Cabernet Sauvignon released commercially. Like, it would be very surprising to me if that was the case. And now it's the number one planted grape in the world. You can find it in essentially any country that grows grapes. And so this is the thing that a lot of the producers that we work with are doing, uh, especially the European producers where grapes are indigenous too, um, is they're trying to preserve these heritage uh, grape varieties. They're trying to be like, just because it hasn't been economically viable in the past doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve to exist. Uh, you know, that's not why we're in it for most of us is not to like make the big bucks necessarily. It's to <laughs> Probably like, the opposite. <laughs> yeah, it's to like express something that we find valid and important and, and worthwhile. And sometimes those other great varieties are the ones to help complete that picture. You know, if you were to look at... Um, uh, like Campania, uh, like 50 years ago, and you know, the rise of international grape varieties, the planting of Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, Merlot, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at the cost of things like Alianico, Fiano di Avellino, uh, Rosso. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly, uh, Cote di Volpe, uh, you know, all these, these sort of indigenous grape varieties, like, what if that, those had all gone? And now we're looking at those grape varieties as being like, wow, these are incredibly high quality. We should plant the heck out of these. And there's this resurgence. And it's like, we were so close to losing all those grape varieties. And that is ridiculous because they're very delicious. They're more delicious than pretty much every other white grape varieties being grown in, in Italy. Uh, and it's like, they add something interesting to the canon. So that is I, I don't know if you remember this, but our, in our last meeting, uh, just before Christmas, we were uh, tasting wine. We just came by the restaurant. We were kind of talking about the, the state of things professionally, certainly, but also personally. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was said, and I think you said it actually, was it, what is this adding to the conversation? And I often think about it. I hadn't put it in those exact words, but it is a thing that I have often thought about. And the other way, I guess, to think about that is imagine a world where, I mean, you just went to a spice cabinet that's full of different spices. Imagine there was only four spices on the planet. Yeah. That's fucking boring. Yeah. That is <laughs> fucking boring. And why do we want to celebrate this lack of diversity yeah. by only consuming? Because remember, how you, how you voice your opinion is your dollars. Every time you buy big volumes of that 
Cabernet that shouldn't be planted somewhere, Mm -hmm. you are telling producers, we should have this here. We should be growing this. And that's that's just not the case. And in the worst cases, growers were actively paid to tear up old vines. Yeah. You look at the south of France in Carignan, where the vine pull scheme heavily targeted Carignan in favor of planting grapes from Bordeaux. Why? 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 That's just <laughs> it's so, not the right that's climate. so ridiculous. The, there's no historical precedent to those grades being there. Your point yeah. about Italian, I mean, I am in charge of our Italian selection for Metro. I've kind of, well, I've learned a little bit of Italian. I'm still very poor at it, but I, I also get to go to a place that I really love and I get to think about it. And, and the more I've learned, Italy is, is a young country. Italy's technically four years older than Canada as a country, <laughs> as a unified country. And even younger still when you consider that as in its current form is post-World War II. That is a very different way of thinking about this extremely historic and historically important country mm-hmm. that gave Europe, most of Europe, the vines that we're talking about and the wines, the yeah. preface for the wines that we're still talking about to this day, totally. 2,000 and years the later. Uh, you know whether you think of concrete coming from the Romans. Absolutely. And, yeah. Planting vines where other crops wouldn't survive. That is what the Romans gave us. The Greeks totally. gave us a fucking party. The yeah. Greeks <laughs> gave us the idea that wine is democratic and that wine should be, if you're a slave, a peasant, or you're a yeah. king, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets wine. That's what the Greeks yeah. really did give us that. Yeah. The Romans. Plus like a lot of the base material. Yeah, of, exactly. Of, of actual physical grapevines. Absolutely. Uh, that is, and that's why I think these things are really interesting that Italy's diversity from one very tiny place to another is, is different. And that's because the culture was very isolated Mm -hmm. and that is between towns language shifts slightly the way that accents in the uk shift every 10 miles like yeah (laughs) you you can tell when somebody's an outsider based on the accent and it's the same in italy that a very small what we in north america view a very small distance to them is maybe further than you traveled in your lifetime you wouldn't associate with those people because they were maybe your enemies why are you going to share culture and technique so you get the same grape variety but with different natural massel selection different hand different culture of making those things and even though the material is roughly speaking the same or as a generality it's the same (laughs) yet the expression is recognizable from one town to the next yeah Alianico de Volture versus, you know, an Irpinia Alianico. Yeah. How, how does the, how do those things differ? Well, they differ for so many reasons. Yeah. But the culture that is culture is a huge factor. Huge. Yeah. Factor. My question for you: Does culture does does terroir include a human element? Uh, I think that if you want to get to the purest expression of what I believe terroir to be, which is not inclusive, not inclusive of culture. I think that the least amount of influence from humans needs to go into that humanly possible. There's always going to be some human influence because, you know, the decision to plant Pinot Noir versus Chardonnay on a plot, it was, was a human decision. The choice on how to prune those vines is going to be a decision. But I think that those are just variables and whether you planted Chardonnay or Pinot Noir on there, 
if it is a terroir that has a voice that's strong enough to speak, it'll show through in whatever grape variety you have planted there, provided it's a grape variety that can show terroir. Uh, and so I think that it shouldn't be as considered in the conversation of terroir. Is it important in the grand scheme of wine? Yes, I think it's incredibly important in the grand scheme of wine. Um, but I think if your goal is to get to like pure terroir, I think that it needs to be uh, removed as much as possible. Again, how much you can do that is, is a different story. Uh, it's, it's, I think, it, but in my definition of terroir, I rarely include uh, human influences. Um, again, they're going to be there. That's the thing. But like, those are the variables that we're trying to overlook in order to get to the thing that's underneath. Um, yeah. I think, I think we need multiple words of the problem. I think we need a word for like the place that it comes from. And maybe we should just be using Liuzi in that case, where like, this is the, this is this place talking, uh, and the things that influence this place versus terroir maybe is already that overarching word that, that does use culture as well. But yeah, for me, when I use the word terroir, I, I, I a more strict I, definition. Yeah. I intend it to be, uh, the place, uh, from a physical perspective less so from a cultural perspective. But Interesting. Do you have a different definition? I, I am still wrestling with this. It's why yeah. I ask. And I, yeah. I, I value your opinion because I, I know it's experiential, but also it's, it's well thought out. And I, I don't quite know where I land. Yeah, I, I, have, I have arguments on both sides that do and don't include a, a, a human element. <laughs> The, the minimization of maybe, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know. I, I've been thinking That's a fair. lot about one of those philosophical questions of words that we love to throw around, wine people love to throw words around, whether they've actually yeah. thought about what they mean. Oh, this is this oh, terroir-driven wine. It's like, okay, but what the fuck do you mean by that? Like, <laughs> totally. Anyway, yeah. I, I was just thinking about it, so I thought I would... Yeah, I would ask. It no, was no, my, my great... one question that I had for you. No, that's a great question. <laughs> I love that question. Uh, all right, so the next wine that we have, the final wine, the Syrah Battle, uh, Craven Syrah. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right off the bat and be like, give us your uh, sort of like start to finish, uh, sort of like maybe level three tasting note. We don't sure. need to go like uh, you know full full on, but uh, yeah, just without having had time with the wine, like what's your what's your impression? Um, I mean, the wine is certainly clear. It has, it's, it's bordering on a kind of ruby, almost showing a bit of the oxidative edge, or at least by the light that I'm, I'm viewing this within. Uh, it's, it's on the lighter side. So I would say this is, is somewhere between pale and, and medium. And to me, I would probably put this as a, a medium minus in reality to break it apart in mm -hmm. five point where you can kind of still see the stem. You can kind of see through it, but mm, it's not quite as transparent as, as a pure pale wine would be. Uh, on the nose, I think it's certainly clean and, and quite jumpy. It's quite expressive, but immediately to me is everything that I love about Syrah. It shows the black fruit, that boysenberry, that black cherry, that black plum character. It also shows that squishy red berry fruit. And then on equal sides, on that teeter-totter, balancing things out, you've got that meaty, savory character, that peppery character, that 
dried, air-dried, cured meat. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, again, a floral element, and we saw that almost in a kind of comical way in the Intellejo that you saw that lavender, and I think the, the violet iris, the purple flowers, as I, I call them, lavender obviously yeah. not a flower necessarily, but uh, it's the seed that we are after. But at least here, that, that purple nature, that that floral nature is very pure, although slightly more desiccated, um, mm-hmm. showing a bit more dryness. Um, that dusty granite graphite character as a, a mineral or other note, that licorice. Like there, again, I always think about complexity and starting to build these things. If all of this comes through to the palette, that to me is like walking around with a Costco sized shopping cart and I'm filling that with groceries. And where am I filling those groceries from? Am I in the outer aisles where the real food is or am I in the inner aisles where the not so real food is? <laughs> and I'm thinking about how, how full is my cart getting and walking are you saying in that taquitos are not real. <laughs> turns out, <laughs> I mean, they are edible, but and they are made from food like products, but yeah. <laughs> not all of them are food products, I yeah. guess. I mean, weird way of saying that but (laughs) so if all of these things I'm looking for alignment then I'm looking for congruity um there is something that I perceive as oak here there is something that but not the shiny polished new oak I I see this as the the other side of the barrel literally the inside of the barrel which I think of more in that toasted wood campfire camp for resinous charred wood character sometimes that can go a bit far and get a bit coffee like or it can get a little bit um um lactoned so it can get that creamy character i don't find that in here which to me is saying either larger barrel or older barrel or possibly both um and then i i can't help but acknowledge what I'm smelling in that is I, I do perceive a little bit of degradation from age. So starting mm. to see some of the leather, but not the new polished leather, just like not the new oak side of things and, and seeing some of that dehydrated fruit, starting to see some of that earth tone. And and now you're completing this, this picture to me of, of something that you could find in the real world. And this is often how I will think about things is I, I take these kind of general descriptors and then put a picture to it and say, well, this could be, you know, a working farm where they're growing blueberries and raspberries, but they're also raising livestock. And we all know what the fate of most livestock is. Well, all (laughs) livestock, all living things. And in this case, you've got a cured version of that animal that they've raised. So to me, it's, it's working on this actual working farm, not a comical play farm. It has all of those elements to it. So I kind of think about it that way. Um, from a palette perspective, dry, medium plus acidity, medium plus very dusty tannin, almost feels like a cracked clay pot, <laughs> uh, kind of in, in the middle of an arid area (laughs) so it's got that like tacky there's something tactile the way that clay when your hand has clay on it it gets that sticky feeling yeah but the tannins are very pleasant and underneath that dusty tannin structure is a really nice 
fruit character. All of that blueberry and that raspberry and that cherry and that plum that I could, I could smell, I can also taste it. Just adding this other dimension of something a bit more Amaro-like, a bit more dusty-like. Um, body, medium, maybe I could see an argument to something slightly higher, uh, medium plus. There's a bit of a creaminess to the mm -hmm. palate. Um, medium plus flavor intensity. Yeah. I, I also think it's really important to, to say that, well, A, I forgot to say developing, uh, but my logic would have to concede <laughs> that. Yes, but I, I yeah. for sure. Uh, and, and finish, I, I would put in the, the medium plus. It's a bit deceptive. There's a bit of a, a after that creaminess kind of wears off, it, it mm -hmm. takes a little dip. But most people then, especially when you become indoctrinated into to wine academia, will then say, well, that's where the finish stops. Yeah. Well, but if you pay actually close attention, now you're it kind of wells back up. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And to me, I often think about that like a roller coaster. The roller coaster yeah. goes through these various elevation changes very rapidly. Mm -hmm. But if you think about that arc on your palate, think about the sine cosine. Yeah. In mathematics, it, it's the same logic here, but eventually it comes back and yeah. you're paying attention. If it goes down and stays there, that's one thing, but this totally. doesn't do that. And I think it's a bit creepy that. Yeah, it comes back, and you're seeing that fruit matched in in that savoriness really mm -hmm. well. Yeah, I also think it's really important to wine academia is important. It gives us a foundation, but it's not the be all end all. I highly totally. recommend reading other things beyond wine, even just reading things written by people in wine who aren't indoctrinated into academia and tasting and how yeah. they express themselves. Terry mm -hmm. Tiza, Kermit Lynch come to yeah, mind immediately. Sure. This should 100%. be a required reading for any diploma student. I agree. It's important to know what the foundations of those things are, but some of my favorite tasters are much more poetic. They are able to take that foundation and put their own spin on it than that, but it comes yeah. from the foundation. Yep. Trying to Trying to paint a masterpiece when all you've done is finger painting yeah. might be a bit tricky. Maybe not impossible, but might be a bit tricky. Yeah. Here, you're kind of using that as a springboard. You're using it as a foundation to make sure that you're assessing things correctly. But that doesn't necessarily equate to enjoyment. Yeah. Then thinking about it in your own personal way. Well, how does this wine speak to you? Does it speak to you? Is it yeah. adding to a conversation? Is it monopolizing the conversation? That totally. overripeness thing, that's why I don't really like those wines. Yeah. Adding to the conversation, that's somebody yelling through a megaphone <laughs> next to my ear, and I'm not interested in that. I want somebody, this, this wine, all four of these wines are deceptive in their concentration. They're also, I agree. They're, they're saying something that's worth listening to, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I think for those folks that are still listening, um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I hope you have a long car ride. I hope you have a long car ride. Yeah, sorry for this. Um, if you're in academia, enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy, enjoy learning the foundations. The foundations are key. All of the best tasters that I know that have moved away from that, they also have a very strong understanding of the foundations of academic tasting. But start thinking about wine in your own way. How does this appeal to you? What are the things that you like? If that's music, if that's cars, if that's movies, if that's books, poetry, if that's abstract expressionism, I don't, it doesn't matter. It's whatever footwear, clothes. My wife loves clothing. She loves fashion. She loves especially fashion history. Yeah. And so for her, that makes a lot of sense for her to describe tactile things in an almost textile 
yeah. expression, for sure. enjoy that, embrace that, yeah. celebrate that. We should all celebrate that. Anyway, yeah. that's my, my pitch for and against the thing that I do. It's not it's not for and against, but it's it's the two sides. And yeah. it's it's knowing that one side isn't the be all and end all. Totally. And, and my favorite tasters understand both. Yeah. I one of the things that I really liked about about again listening to that tasting note is uh so like obviously our portfolio is we we can be our portfolio is wines we like to drink i'll, I'll phrase it like that yeah. uh and so because we are not selling directly to consumers um we don't need to be a one-stop shop we don't need to carry something for everybody we can just carry what we like and then you know, what other shop, whether it's Metro Vino or Vine Arts or, you know, Andrew Hilton down in Lethbridge, mm -hmm. they can order those other wines through other people. Um, because of that, I tend to drink a lot of wines that are within sort of the threshold of the wines that I like, whether they're from our portfolio or not. Uh, obviously buy a lot of wine from Metro, um, but also a lot of wine from, uh, you know, our friends' portfolios, whether that be, you know, Boutique or Vino Alvino or Garneau Block. Uh, and they have similar palates in the sense that, you know, 13 to 13 and percent alcohol is kind of the threshold for like most of the wines and because of that our wine club you know very rarely do the wines creep up over 13 and percent alcohol so for me when i'm doing the write-up on this i'm like this is full-bodied <laughs> and then i was like and you're like yeah like medium medium plus like there's an argument for medium plus and i'm like you're right this is definitely in the grand scheme of things definitely like medium to medium plus but in the smaller world that is the juice imports wine club this is like <laughs> the upper threshold for sure there are going to be wines that are fuller fuller body than this you know we've had them in the club for sure um but it's just that's a really nice reminder that like my biases come through in our tasting notes where I'm like, this is brooding, this is rich, this is sumptuous. Like, I'm pretty sure those are words that I used in my tasting note for this. Uh, when really, at the same time, like, if you give this to somebody whose only experience of wine is like uh, Segisio Zinfandel uh, at like 15.3% alcohol. On the label. With, yeah, with like new oak and lots of self reported 15.3%. Self reported 15.3%. <laughs> Like they're gonna be like, so you're you're saying that this is like rich and brooding and dark fruited and like blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, like okay, that's um, paint stripping, bitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's they're no like, enamel the, left yeah, on my teeth. Yeah, like, they're like, this is so weak. Like yeah. this is fifty percent water. Like that's that's actually even more water than that technically. Yeah. But uh, anyways, so it's uh yeah that was a really nice uh nice reminder that sometimes I need to uh, recalibrate and. Uh, you know, I drink a lot of wines outside of that threshold as well, too. But that being said, when I'm writing tasting notes, you know, I'm not writing tasting notes on those wines. I'm just drinking those wines with friends. When I'm sitting here, you know, thinking academically about wine, it's usually about the wines that I have to write about, which happen to be the wines in our portfolio. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's always nice sort of getting that uh, recentering yourself and, and being like, cool, like, what is high acidity? What is yeah. medium body? What is medium tannin? Uh, that's an interesting point across these two wines as well, too. I was actually surprised by the amount of tannin in both these wines. Mm -hmm. They were both a lot grippier than they have been in previous vintages, which I think is great. I think people are afraid of tannin these days, especially winemakers, uh, especially natural winemakers. 
and they should not be. I think these are like incredibly gastronomic wines. I think they're physical, which is a, a, a great thing. I feel like you should have a tactile quality to the wine. It shouldn't all just be, uh, you know, fluffy and juicy. I think that there's like no. something nice about the grip and grit. And I think these are, these are two cool examples of that. If you want softness, eat a marshmallow. Like, yeah, what the fuck, like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Have, have some vodka, chase it with a marshmallow. Like, I, I just sounds great. I, yeah, the that's f- in the next wine club. He f- just gave it away. Oh, shit, sorry. Vodka and marshmallow. Terrible. I, <laughs> fuck. I, I think it's it's important, and we're so forgiving on some styles of wine to give them a hall pass and say, mm. oh, well, these high alcohol wines, these are very drinkable. It's like, but but they're still meant to go with food. That yeah. Sagacio's Infidel on its own is sumptuous. That is hedonism at its utmost in yeah. a glass. And that's fine, but we're easier. It's easier for a lot of people to then say, well, that you can just drink on its own. Yeah. Where for some, and for most, that's not the case. And a wine like this, your, your term gastronomic, a wine meant, wine is food. Wine is meant to go with food. We yeah. treat that differently, but the reality is that those things actually can amplify each other and make the experience more holistic. So a wine like this, people are afraid of tannins, but they, sh- they shouldn't be because <laughs> it's, it's just not meant for the context that you want it to be. Yeah. And that's your person interfering with the the wine itself. And again, getting yourself out of the way, getting myself to think more apolitically, getting myself to be exposed to other wines that I wouldn't necessarily, all of those things. So understanding what was the purpose? That was one of the great things that I learned in the MW is actually assessing quality from a, yeah. can you in the glass witness the objective and then ask yourself, was that objective achieved? Hmm. So a wine like this that is producing a Syrah in a, let's say, lo-fi fashion, but does it bear the hallmarks of that? Is that scarred by that? Is it overrun by, or is it amplifying and creating complexity? Those tannins, are they actually unyielding? Well, no, they aren't. But those tannins are actually gonna help this wine in the long term become something greater. The wine itself will become something other. I shouldn't say greater. It will become something other yeah. for good and for bad. You'll lose some of the freshness. You'll gain more savory in it. All of those things. That's all. It's always a give and yeah. take. But I think understanding what was the objective and then looking at whether that objective was achieved was for one sure. of the great things that I, I learned. And I think in both of these, you've got a more playful, even though the labels are playful, there's, there is more seriousness on the Craven. Like he's kind yeah. of telling you that by the picture where the color scheme, the kind of cartoonish nature of the intelligent, I think that yeah. actually kind of sums up what's inside. Yeah. Cleverly, deceptively, thoughtfully. Yeah. But it's, it does kind of represent what's in, in the bottle. Something totally. a bit more fun and playful, something a bit more serious, something a bit more classic, something a bit more yeah. m- modern, but not yeah, really. I don't know. I don't know. It's, yeah, it's hard to categorize it. Both are uh, fun. Both are different. Both are yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on how you define fun. But yeah. Well, fun anyway. by me. Diatribe. Uh, I guess like okay. One final question before because <laughs> it's getting it's we're getting deep here. Oh yeah, we gone we gone way long. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, hey, that's for those of you that know me, you would expect this. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So the last question is: uh, the Intellego is planted on uh, granite. Um, you know, 
really uh, like low fertility granite site versus the Craven is planted uh, inland in this warm subregion called the Devon Valley, uh, which is still in Stellenbosch, but it's a subregion of Stellenbosch that will maybe one day have its own, you know, Appalachian status or something. Uh, but it's actually planted on red clay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that these characteristics really show through in these wines. Um, when you're looking for soil type impressions on wine, um, can you maybe give us like a quick, um, like if you're tasting a wine blind and, and you want to sort of maybe guess the soil type, like if you're, if you're trying to narrow it down your region based on soil type, is there certain things that you uh, notice in uh, either red or white or both uh, that sort of lead you those directions? Oh, that is dangerous territory. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but that it's is, one of those things where it's like... very dangerous territory, yeah. but I cannot help. And so I actually... I thought that in your description of the Craven, there was mention of granitic sand, and yet there my, was for for Caribbean, for that vineyard. For the oh, Shen, sorry, for, for the, the Shannon vineyard. Okay, so yeah, wherever that stuck in my mind, yeah. I imprinted that on this. But if you go back and listen to how I described, yeah, I talked about clay pots. I cannot. <laughs> like, I I just. I mean, okay, so I did a. a I've done some soil tastings. I've done some things like that. I've done some oak barrel tastings, like different oak, different sizes, different ages from different some regions. Producers, forests. Same, yeah. same producer, different. Yeah. So like ca- Caucasian, so like Russian wood versus yeah. American versus French versus Hungarian, Slavonian, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And with the same wine. So you can actually see the imprint. And, totally. I, and, and when you get to do things like that, it's dangerous territory to start making correlations between soil yeah. type and expression. However... From a technical viticultural standpoint, soil is a the anchor for those vines. That is the the the, the environment in which a vine root system will make itself present, and it is also going to dictate the availability or lack of particular nutrients, be they macro or micro. There's a small set of them on both sides of that spectrum that a vine actually needs. However, the available nutrients will affect berry composition. And so I think that there is an argument that has long been dismissed by uh, geologists is now getting life breathed into it. There's some great podcasts. There's a a particularly wonderful young woman named Brianna Quigley uh, in the U.S. She's Mm -hmm. a a master's, I believe, in geology. She also has some great friends like Rajat Parr who have taken her into the wine world and as a result she not only is is has done deep dives in geology on particular regions but also is trying to find what wine people have been talking about for ages which is i cannot help that chardonnay grown on limestone in tasmania or the yarra valley or burgundy or champagne or the finger lakes has a similar character to it yeah not exact but there is a thread that ties those things together Mm -hmm. now we can start putting some evidence beyond anecdote to that yeah so again i I cannot emphasize my own trepidation of drawing false correlations between well this is grown on this soil type so therefore it will have this that's not true but in some cases 
you just cannot help the expression. To me, yeah. sandy soils usually have a bit more lift to them, yeah. but there's lots of winemaking tricks that you can use to get lift in a wine. For sure. The clay-like texture, that sticky, tacky texture that clay yeah. wines, grapes grown on clay just tend to have. Right Bank Merlot has it. Yeah. Some Pinot has it, depending on where they are in what village and where they are within that village. Yeah. Um, I, I just volcanic soil. I did a volcanic, volcanic tasting, is so and it's it's obvious. It's the fucked. Yeah, it's fucked. It's, it's like, comical. Yeah, for sure. Sicilian, like Etna, Campania, Veneto, Oregon, Napa. If you find yeah. producers who are able to get out of the way of the wine, you can express that yeah. unmistakable uh, Riesling, smoky character. Yeah, for sure from the faults getting those those volcanic basaltic porphyric notes in a yeah. and and something that actually smells smoky no oak totally. just has a smoky care a salty yeah. care i can't fucking help it so yeah. I, I i do subscribe to it but i am intensely trepidatious to <laughs> say definitively in a blind tasting this is this but yeah i mean again well now 15 minutes ago whatever it was you can rewind it and hear me say yeah. I just described the soil type as the tannin structure that I am perceiving. So Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I hey, I feel the same way too. And it's it's one of those things that it seems like twenty years ago the scientists were like, cool, we've proven that there's no correlation between the soil or like the vines uptaking soil molecules and putting them into the grape. And they're like, story done. Uh yes, please. Uh <laughs> sorry. They're they're like, uh, story done. Uh terroir is bogus and then basically people went and started looking at the hydrology uh so like the water holding capacity of soil and how that affects things like root hormones and then how those hormones affect uh flavor precursors and not only that but if you're working with indigenous yeasts how the indigenous yeasts from certain environments because obviously each soil is going to be more conducive to different uh you know little little microbiomes essentially uh, how those yeast are then going to affect that wine because again 60% of the flavor of wine comes from the yeast not from the grape so it's like if you're if your environment you know if there's only certain types of yeast that live in limestone and they none of those yeasts live in granite then story right there is like cool that's the difference but the thing is that we are looking for the most e the easiest answer for the longest time which was oh cool the grapes are just actually uptaking soil and it turns out that the easiest answer was not the case. And now we need to look at all these other correlations, whether that's water availability, nutrient availability, uh, soil microbiome, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's for me, again, I, I think that there is definitive argument for the fact that uh, soil has a huge influence on the final flavor of the wine. But I think that uh, we are still in the early stages of figuring out correlations um it's a failure of language yeah it was a sure. failure of language and then a failure of interpretation of that language yeah it was a bunch of people who drink wine all day long and actually know nothing about plants or geology being like well somebody told me that this is limestone soils and this tastes like limestone tastes like chalk yeah and so, and they're just like cool like that just has to be the answer and then you know basically for the last 
couple thousand years, geologists have been laughing at us, being like, "Why do you guys keep making up names for rocks?" Yeah, uh, yeah. like that's oh, like yeah. literally you literally can't say that. That's yeah. not a, that's not the thing. It's not a thing. Uh, and I'm I'm guilty of this all the time. And you know, any of our podcast listeners, I'm sure, are laughing at us uh, as we speak. But uh, you know, a, as the wine industry becomes more uh, scientifically literate, mm. uh, I think that there will be more argument for terroir via soil rather than less. Um, it's it's a complex thing. And, you know, you have mentioned 15 variables <laughs> yeah. out, out of the, let's say, in that very simplified manner, 5,000 variables, mm-hmm. give or take. There's so many different things to think about and and to draw this. That's why I say I exercise great trepidation in drawing a a causal relationship between these two things. But what we, when we taste wet chalk in a wine, that doesn't mean that there's wet chalk in the wine, just the same as when we taste apples in a wine, they didn't add apples (laughs) unless you're Brett Rowland on Vancouver Island who did, (laughs) but that's, but he told you it's on the label. So, I think that what was a mistake in language doesn't necessarily mean that it was wrong. And then <laughs> geologists picking up on that and saying, well, you, you can't have that thing be that way. But then there, it's kind of like a facsimile of a facsimile of a facsimile. And, it's, and this yeah. broken telephone game became so distorted. Yeah. And that's why it kind of took 10 or 15 years of nobody really talking about it to induce yeah. new people in to start actually looking at it analytically and and seeing prove or disprove i am open to both if it's completely false that's fine i can't help what i taste but if science can measurably prove that what we're talking about is bullshit then that's fine i'll accept that and if they say no wait you were just using the wrong terms but there is a correlation because of these factors of how plant biology works yeah then maybe there wasn't maybe it wasn't bullshit Totally. I think that's, I, I mean, that's exciting. Again, like wine's intensely complex. I don't know. Stephen Skelton did your vidi part, right? And yes. I remember you talking yes, about it when you were reading his book. And it's like, this guy's hilarious. And I'm like, I don't know if I would refer to Stephen Skelton as hilarious, but he actually very much is. He's very, it's, but it's, it's a certain kind of humor. It's very dry. It's very dark. And very he, dry. he's super intelligent. And I've been fortunate because he works for Fine Vintage, a company that I work for. I've, I've been able to spend time with him and go out for dinner and have drinks mm. with him and talk to him about things that he's witnessed in an almost 50-year career in this yeah. industry, which is unfathomable to me. And him, I remember very distinctly verbatim the opening line of his of our diploma was between picking a place on the planet to plant grapes and putting a wine with a label into a box to ship it around the world to sell it somewhere. There's about 10,000 variables, give or take that you have to think about. Yeah. I remember him saying again, pretty much word for word. And yeah, you know, when you start making these, it's like, well, this variable causes this. It's like, but there's so many other complexities and that's, it's hard as an instructor to, to simplify those in a, fair way but that is a lot of what has to happen it's a lot of what you do as well when you're talking to people i i am not a scientist you're not a scientist i like reading those things and i like understanding it but Mm -hmm. i can't do it for myself i can't i can't understand it that yeah but i think it's important to to honor what you taste honor what you're experiencing and if there is a correlation or if there's something that you noticed and then 
it happens again and again and again and again and again, maybe there's something there, or at least for you. And mm-hmm. that's that's the important bit. It's maybe not about for finding sure. the universal, but it's about how something expresses itself to you. Mm-hmm. But then don't become closed-minded and say, well, this wine has 14% <laughs> alcohol, therefore I'm not going to drink it because that's fucking asinine. And, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do it all the time. And yeah. I, I, I mean, those who know me know I'm an asshole. And it's, it's I, I mean, I can't, I can't help it, but keep an open mind. That's yeah. it. Keep an open mind, taste everything. That should be, that's my like academic. If I had two, if I had one rule with a sub clause, it would be yeah. taste, taste everything. everything and do it with an open mind because mm-hmm. you never know what's going to surprise you. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that's great. You're, um, you're a fucking legend, buddy. I gotta say, thank you. I, I, I you are you that. are an unsung hero. I say this often behind your back <laughs> that you are a, a guy that cares very deeply for the product, and and I think that comes through in everything that you do. But also, you are you you are out there. You're out there pounding the pavement. You are out there trying to one glass at a time, not take over the world, but just one glass at a time showing people an alternative to their preconceived ideas of wine. And that I think is worth celebrating. And I wish more people took that stance that sure, we all like what we like, that's fine. But we, you specifically are out there really trying to connect with people and understand their prerogative about things. You're well-researched, well-read and and sharing that information. You're not hoarding it. And I I very much admire because that's the community think that's my yeah that's my eric fucking rocks yeah (laughs) thank you for uh pumping my tires that was very much appreciated oh man Uh, you're you're (laughs) you're doing what a lot of people say they want to do but you're the one who's who's out there actually hustling and that's that's not easy it's especially given the state of the fucking world that's not an easy thing but you managed to to keep the momentum and yeah a, a business that started just, on a laptop on a couch that yeah, exactly. has, has <laughs> that a, has been on a laptop and a couch for like three and a half years that, that then, has morphed into yeah, something now amazing. Now we have a desk. Yeah, yeah. You're, we, we're like a you're like a real business into having a desk now. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. only three and a half years of couch before we got one desk. I mean, you're so. almost you're almost to equal parts. Yeah, this is the, this is the dream. It's great. But totally. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. people that I mean, people who are listening, I, I hope. You understand. Oh, nobody's listening. Anymore. Nobody's listening. Yeah. This is just if you're still listening, you're probably wasted. Yeah. Um, this is like one of those end of the world things. Where it's like yeah, if yeah. you're still out there listening. Yeah, yeah. Know that there's hope. No, there's somebody out there. Um, all right. So okay, here here's the close the closing conclusion. It is like, uh, first of all, uh, go visit Maddie at any of the, uh, the the fine places that he works. Either register for one of his courses um, via Fine Vintage, via WSET. Uh, great courses, honestly. Um, you know, and I, I'm sure Fine Vintage wants everybody to take level one, but uh, skip level one, go right to level two. <laughs> if you if you listen to this much of the podcast, there's absolutely no reason for you to go to level one. Uh, you've already learned far more than <laughs> than is included in that course. It's, it's very uh, introductory. So honestly, skip to level two. Level three, if you've got a little more knowledge uh, under your belt already, but honestly, the classes are very much worth taking, especially if you have many as the instructor. 
Uh, definitely go visit at uh, Metrovino. Go take a look at his Italian section. He's more than happy to walk you through that, but also through their fantastic collection of Riesling. Shannon uh, Blanc obviously geeked out about that. There's some Syrah stores as well, too. Uh, yeah. You know, they, they, there's some good things some on the Bojo. shelf there. Yeah, lots of Bojo. Uh, so that's definitely worthwhile. Um, yeah, any any conclusions on the wines? Any Anything you have to say about these as a, as a collection, but also as individuals and... and you know, I, yeah, I think a drink more South African wine, especially when it tastes like this. Mm-hmm. Um, don't, don't get sucked into the big brands. Um, for a, a minor amount of money more, there is infinitely more pleasure to be derived from these. Mm-hmm. I do like, I like all of these and I have consumed all of these with my own mouth, with money that I, I, made with my own body (laughs) and i i i like i like how different they are seeing them side by side this is the first time i've seen them in this Mm. format yeah usually we taste by producer when new things arrive it's very rare that you're just doing a whole lineup although that has kind of happened to some degree or another in some cases but yeah um I, i do really love the difference between these and very pure. They're all recognizable for the grape, but yeah. not for the bad reasons. They're not for the comical, shitty reasons. Yeah. They're for the good reasons that makes you want to drink them and makes you want to have more of them. Mm-hmm. So, final thoughts. I'm uh, yeah. Drink. I wish more. Sh- I wish more South African wine was like this. Yes. I That's, agree. I, I. I wish that we got more of it. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Final thought. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any questions, you can send me an email at eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com uh, or send us a message on Instagram. We're just at juiceimports. We can chat with you there. Uh, you know, like I said, go talk to Maddie uh, and we'll talk to you uh, next month. Cheers. Thanks. Enjoy.